The Lord called out to Moses from the burning bush, Come no nearer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cry against their slave drivers, so I know well what they are suffering. Therefore I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians, and lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites. From the third chapter, the book of Exodus. Like the Israelites, we too will soon depart from Egypt. I have already devoted three episodes to the land beside the Nile. We have yet to cover, though, what many consider to be the greatest period in Egypt's long history, the New Kingdom. After this period of roughly five centuries, Egypt will only occasionally come back into focus in discussing our Western traditions. In this episode, I will tell not only of the dynasties of the New Kingdom of Egypt and the various periods of lesser glory that follow it until the Romans conquer Egypt, but I will also relate the few murky details that we have about the Bronze Age collapse, a regional apocalypse that will forever alter the culture and technology of the kingdoms of the Near East and the Mediterranean. Before I describe all those things, though, I do want to encourage my listeners to check out my website, western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. There you can find links to all the episodes, source lists for each podcast, as well as links to good books that relate to pertinent topics such as history, technology, philosophy, and religion. And if you so choose, you can support the podcast through Patreon or PayPal. Now, before I get into the content of this podcast, I want to let you know that with regards to names, I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what I did in the last episode about Egypt. I did not consider the names of the pharaohs and the other leaders of the Middle Middle Kingdom to be terribly important or noteworthy for a student of the Western traditions. However, that is not the case with the New Kingdom, and once you start listening, you will probably agree. Many of the names you probably know already, such as Tutankhamun and Ramses. So this episode, in contrast to the last Egyptian episode, will include a focus on personalities as well as events. So let us continue then and finish the Egyptian story. We left off in the last Egyptian episode with the land coming out of the long, anarchic, second intermediate period and a lengthy and humiliating subjugation to the foreign Hyksos. Finally, a king from Upper Egypt began a military campaign to reunite the land. One of his sons finished that campaign, and another son, almost the first, became the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty and of the New Kingdom. In this dynasty and in those that followed, Egypt would experience some of the greatest drama and tragedy of its entire existence. It is likely that the exodus of the Israelites, a biblical tale with which many of us are familiar in Western society, it's likely that this event would have occurred sometime during the New Kingdom of Egypt, this last zenith of the ancient civilization that rose along the banks of the Nile over 5,000 years ago. That is not the only reason, though, that our attention is drawn to this realm one more time. 
The new kingdom is the last and perhaps greatest demonstration of Egypt's ancient majesty. How did this final and greatest peak of Egyptian civilization begin? It began with the ascension of Amos I to the throne of Egypt. His father and brother had battled the Hyksos in an effort to unite the divided kingdoms of Egypt sometime during the middle of the 16th century BC. Both of those rulers died before they could finish the unification completely and throw the Hyksos out of power, if not out of Egypt. Amos I, following the deaths of father and brother, became the king of Egypt. He was still a small child when he inherited the double crown of the land, but he or his regents continued the military campaigns of his predecessors. Now, Amos, and that's spelled A-H-M-O-S-E, Amos succeeded not only in unifying Egypt once again, but in expanding its power and influence in the region. After recapturing Egypt and Tyre, he launched military campaigns southward into Nubia and northeastward into Canaan. His ventures into Canaan continued to target the Hyksos, their base of power apparently being in that region. Suddenly, in the space of one pharaoh's reign, Egypt had gone from a kingdom torn by civil strife into a burgeoning empire bent on dominating its neighbors. As the first pharaoh of all Egypt in roughly 100 years, Amos founded the 18th dynasty of Egyptian kings. He ruled from his capital in Thebes in the old southern kingdom of Upper Egypt. He held the throne for approximately 25 years and passed power on to his son, Amenhotep, and that's spelled A-M-E-N-H-O-T-E-P, Amenhotep. This re-inaugurated a pattern of unbroken succession that would largely characterize Egyptian politics for the duration of the New Kingdom for nearly 500 years. Now, I could easily have made an entire series dedicated just to Egypt, possibly just to the New Kingdom. There are so many important historical moments and great men and women to discuss. That would, however, distract from the goal of the podcast, which is to, someday, arrive at Western history and study the Western traditions. Since we will have to look elsewhere for a podcast devoted to Egypt, I'm going to skip over some significant matters and summarize a great many others in order to keep the focus on the West. But even in doing so, this will be a longer episode, such as the magnitude of New Kingdom Egypt in both world history and the history of the West. Given the task of trying to pick and choose the most important events and people associated with the New Kingdom, I decided to skip over several generations of descendants of Amos I and begin with one of the most powerful and remembered pharaohs of Egyptian history. I speak of Thutmose III. And Thutmose is spelled T-H-U-T-M-O-S-E, Thutmose. Thutmose III is remembered as one of Egypt's greatest pharaohs. You have probably heard the saying, though, that behind every great man is a great woman. It is certainly true in the case of Thutmose III. While he eventually became a great pharaoh in his own right, Thutmose inherited the throne when he was just two years old. Now, such successions to the throne when the inheriting king is of such a fragile age can be very dangerous for a kingdom. The door is open to any and all who want to have a greater influence and power in the kingdom to try and seize that power. Without a strong defender and guide for a young king, such scenarios can and often have turned into disasters as bloodthirsty competitions for the throne turn into civil wars. Fortunately for Thutmose III and for Egypt itself, his aunt, Hatshepsut, and that's spelled H-A-T-S-E-P-S-H-U-T, Hatshepsut, she took the reins of government when Thutmose's father died and ruled in her young nephew's name for over two decades. Now, Hatshepsut had been the principal wife of the previous pharaoh, Thutmose II. Pharaohs had many wives, and typically the eldest son of the principal wife would be chosen as the pharaoh's heir. 
This matter would only be complicated if the heir died before he could inherit the throne or if the principal wife failed to produce any male heirs. Such was the case with Hatshepsut. She had had no sons. The boy who would become the next pharaoh, Thutmose III, was born from one of her husband's other wives. Now, Thutmose was just two years old prior to the pharaoh's death, so he was the eldest living male heir of his father, the pharaoh, but at only two years of age, a strong and wise hand was clearly needed to manage the kinghood while he grew into his role. Hatshepsut's aunt stepped into that role without hesitation. The actual mother of the pharaoh might seem like the more appropriate choice for the role of guardian and regent, but Hatshepsut seized power and defended her actions by pointing out that she was the only child of the principal wife of her husband's father, the previous pharaoh Thutmose I. Essentially, if Hatshepsut had been born male, she would have been pharaoh instead of her now late husband. And what a pharaoh she was. Hatshepsut was a builder, not simply in the physical sense, but commercially and politically. Many pharaohs, both before and after her, would be able to take credit for successful military campaigns that restored or expanded Egypt's borders and strengthened her influence and power in the region and in the world. Hatshepsut put her energy into strengthening ties with the rest of the world. She increased trade and beautified Egypt with immense architectural and artistic ventures. Her statuary, temples, and other wonders of construction litter the map of ancient Egypt and now the world. Every major museum featuring Egyptian exhibitions possesses at least one of the works commissioned by this pharaoh. And the ruins of many of her incredible temples, obelisks, and other edifices continue to be revealed in excavations up and down the Nile. Among them is her most famous mortuary temple. This immense colonnaded structure is 300 feet across and over 80 feet high. The literal translation of the Egyptian name of this temple means Holy of Holies, something to remember when we come to the story of the Israelites and their construction of a temple of their own, with its own centralized Holy of Holies inside it, several centuries later. Now, eventually, Thutmose III came of age and took the throne and claimed its authority as his own. But not as soon as you might have thought. In other royal coming-of-age stories throughout history, you might hear of a king wresting power from his regents at an early age. Sometimes a, a virile young king might begin asserting his leadership in his teens. At the very least, you would expect that by 18 or 21, uh, the pharaoh would have come of age and taken the throne. But Thutmose did not get completely free of his aunt's oversight until the age of 24, when Hatshepsut finally and obligingly passed away. Nevertheless, while this might incline us to think that Thutmose III would reveal himself to be a less-than-strong pharaoh, nothing could be further from the truth. He apparently learned a great deal from Hatshepsut during their co-regency together, and Thutmose continued to rule the land of the Nile very capably. Furthermore, his was also a very long rule. Thutmose III was sole ruler of Egypt for more than 30 years after Hatshepsut's death, giving him a total length of reign of more than 50 years. Where Hatshepsut's greatest feats were in building and restoring great architecture and artwork in Egypt and in establishing better trade with foreign nations, Thutmose III focused on a more aggressive campaign of expanding Egypt's borders and her influence in the region. He may not have had much choice in this militaristic approach, though. Before Hatshepsut's body had cooled, a Syrian army advanced into Canaan, a territory controlled by Egypt. This is not an unsurprising move when a powerful leader dies. Surrounding nations will attempt to reset their relationships in their own favor. Thutmose, however, quickly assembled and organized his own army and went out to meet the enemy. 
leading the troops in the field personally, though he may or may not have actually engaged in combat. He did leave a record claiming credit for the victory over the Syrians, which happened thanks to his exploitation of the Pass of Megiddo, a famous, famous now for its mention in the Book of Revelations, the place known as Armageddon. Thutmose's army took the difficult route through this mountain pass in Canaan and appeared at the rear of the Syrian forces before decimating them. Thutmose acquired a taste for victory with this battle. He continued throughout his kingship to campaign in Canaan, Syria, and even into Anatolia. After defeating the Syrians soundly several times, he began to threaten the Mitanni, an Indo-European nation in the region of southern Anatolia and northern Mesopotamia, based around the upper reaches of the Euphrates River. Famously, Thutmose III brought ships with him from Egypt. He hauled them overland through northern Mesopotamia and launched them upon arriving at the Euphrates River, and this surprised the Mitanni, who, first of all, apparently had no idea that they would be attacked, and even less expectation that their enemy would bring ships to cross the best natural barrier protecting them, the great river Euphrates. Thutmose also, later in life, advanced an army up the Nile, south into Nubia. While much of his energy was devoted to warfare, Thutmose III was by no means a one-dimensional ruler. He also, like his aunt before him, adorned the land of the Nile with a great many architectural and artistic works, building temples and erecting obelisks and statues all across the realm. Much of this work survives to this day, though not always in Egypt. Like many of the relics associated with Hatshepsut, a lot of the work that Thutmose III commissioned found its way into museums and public displays around the world. One of the many granite obelisks that he added to the Temple of Ammon is now found in Istanbul in modern-day Turkey, and another is now standing in Rome, Italy. The line of pharaohs from, the eight, from this 18th dynasty continued. The son of Thutmose III, Amenhotep II, was not as successful as his father, but he maintained the realm during his lifetime, and this was no small feat. And there was a Thutmose IV and another Amenhotep, this one the third of that name. And it was during his reign, that of Amenhotep III, that New Kingdom Egypt reached another high point of power and grandeur, one of many peaks in the timeline of the New Kingdom in which three dynasties would put forth numerous pharaohs of great character and strength. Amenhotep III was also a long-lived ruler, and during his 30th year on the throne, he celebrated a Sed festival. This celebration was traditional in Egypt, but it was also rarely seen because a pharaoh was only supposed to hold such a festival when he held sole power over Egypt for 30 complete years. The festival was a religious rite dating all the way back to the Old Kingdom, it seemed to function as a testimony to the king's ascension to godhood, a sort of guarantee that he would transition divinely into the world of the gods at his death. In preparation for the festival, Amenhotep had new temples built throughout the realm. He commissioned many new statues as well. And the festival traveled with the king, apparently, up and down the Nile, so that both Upper and Lower Egypt might experience the king's presence and the festival itself. He would ceremoniously switch crowns depending on which part of his realm he was in, wearing the white crown in Upper Egypt and the red crown in Lower Egypt. There were also a lot of rituals and costume changes, costume changes associated with this festival. These said festivals, on the rare occasions when they were held, were not just overnight parties. Said festivals lasted for months. 
As far as we can tell, Amenhotep III's first said festival may have lasted over six months. It is possibly difficult for modern people, especially in the West, to imagine such a celebration. We have become used to setting aside no more than one day for any sort of special celebration. This hasn't always been true in our culture, though. Not long ago, even here in the West, we still retained these kinds of traditions and having celebrations that endured for weeks. Consider the 12 days of Christmas, which is not just a song, but is a reference to an actual spread of celebratory time between December 25th and January 6th. And Easter in traditional Christianity was not just a day, but it was the whole seven-week period following it as well, mimicking the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, a 50-day festival of sorts instituted in the Bible. Now, in keeping apparently with the whole tradition of said festivals, now that Amenhotep had completed 30 years of rule, he could repeat the festival at shorter intervals. He held another said festival in his 34th year, and a final festival was held in year 37 of his reign. Surely this would have been a memorable time in the life of even the average Egyptian. But great as was the mighty Amenhotep, he would commit one error for which the priests of Egypt would probably never forgive him. He fathered his son, Amenhotep IV, who is otherwise remembered to history as Akhenaten. Now, I have stated before that my podcast does a disservice to Egypt. Even dedicating four entire episodes to the story of the Nile does not in the least way properly address the majesty of the subject matter. It is almost painful to exclude so much and to abridge so heavily what I do not exclude. And here, in the story of Akhenaten, I will abridge much. The story of this pharaoh is a great romantic story of drama and religious fervor. I will do what justice to it that I can here in the time and space that I have allotted to it. But before we get into the reign of Akhenaten, I think we should return to the subject of ancient religion, which has always been a fundamental part of our understanding of man in the ancient world. As you may already know, the default religious perspective of the ancient world was quite different than our own. These days, and really for the last couple thousand years in the West, religious arguments have basically boiled down to this. Is there a god or not? Is there one god or none? In the ancient world, and certainly in the prehistoric world, the existence of divine beings was taken for granted. It was as obvious as daylight to everyone that spiritual unseen forces controlled the movement of sea and wind, the rise of sun and moon, the change of seasons, the accidents, happy and otherwise, of daily life. So initially, as far as we can tell, there was little debate about the existence of the gods in the plural. Perhaps another podcast could address just exactly what we mean when we say that people believed in gods and what people who quote-unquote worshipped the multiple gods of the ancient world were actually feeling and thinking when they engaged in religious practices. This is a loaded topic. Let me leave the subject by saying that we moderns, religious or not, probably have a whole different meaning in our usage of the term believe than when we compare ourselves to our ancestors. Anyway, the ancients lived in a world awash with gods, amid a tide of spiritual forces, influenced by an unseen world that was probably as significant to them as the visible world that surrounded them. Now, might there have been a dyed-in-the-wool atheist back then, as we have now, people who believe absolutely that there is no God, that the universe is entirely a consequence of natural, discernible phenomena? There is some suggestion of such viewpoints existing in the ancient world, but little that is recorded until a much later date. No, as far as we can tell, the men and women of this time period were devout believers. 
not simply carrying around in their head an intellectual consent to the idea of divine forces, as many people do today, but actually living out habits and routines and practicing rites that manifested such belief on a regular basis, on a daily basis. The Romans, prior to their Christianization, believed in gods that participated in even the simplest of human acts, including nothing more than passage through a doorway. These same apparently trivial gods all dwelled together in one spiritual sea along with the perhaps more important gods of childbirth, the gods of earthquakes, the gods of warfare. Indeed, ancient man lived in a world that was more divine than mundane. There is an inclination today, even in those that do not practice any of the modern monotheistic religions, to look down on this sort of belief system with condescension, to belittle the minds of men and women who achieved great things in their lives but simultaneously believed in gods and spirits, in signs and omens, in the significance of goat entrails and the flights of birds and tea leaves. Such an apparent contradiction bewilders the modern mind with its vision of the world blinkered and narrowed by a false appreciation of science. I cannot reconcile this matter for you if you are too stymied by the idea that great men like Socrates believed in divinity, in gods, in the unseen world. In this podcast, all I can do is look at what our ancestors are purported to have believed, and the evidence all points to an ancient world in which everyone, from the lowest among the laboring classes to the greatest minds of the elite rulers, everyone believed in a plethora of gods and spiritual beings. Now, this all may seem like a digression, but religious belief is a matter which greatly occupied the mind of Amenhotep IV, pharaoh of Egypt, son of Amenhotep III and ruler of the land beside the Nile. It weighed so heavily on his mind that, in the fifth year of his reign, he changed his royal name to Akhenaten, and that is spelled A-K-H-E-N-A-T-E-N. There are variants of that spelling, but that's the one we'll go with for this podcast. He changed his royal name to Akhenaten in order to reflect the changed focus of his own religious belief. Now, while reviled by contemporaries and many who came after him, after his rediscovery in the 19th century, Akhenaten was essentially viewed with praise by modern men because of, of how he approached the subject of religion. Akhenaten may have been the first historical personage to deny that sea of gods to which I referred earlier, the first to say that there was only one god worth worshipping and to declare his allegiance to that god. This sort of talk may sound familiar. If you have read your Bible, you know about the biblical writers frequently urging the Israelites to return to their god. If you are a Christian, you know how exclusionary that belief system is, essentially describing all other gods as false or demonic or in a more enlightened tone, as misrepresentations of the one true God. So Amenhotep IV, who would become Akhenaten, he was born into a culture which encouraged the worship of thousands of gods and which accepted all of them with an undiscerning eye. He became pharaoh over this polytheistic society when his father Amenhotep III died sometime around the year 1350 BC. Possibly already at a young age, a young Amenhotep IV had become disgusted with the religious practices of the priesthoods, especially the most dominant priesthood, that of Ammon. Ammon was the prevailing, prevailing chief of the Egyptian religious pantheon in the way that Zeus was the top god in polytheistic Greece. The priests of the Temple of Ammon kept a large harem, publicly reserved for the god, possibly like nuns in Catholicism, but the priests were actually using them for sexual entertainment, and these priests were also wealthy and corrupt, at least in the eyes of young Amenhotep. As if to signal that his reign would be very different from those of his predecessors, that he would be no respecter of tradition, 
Amenhotep III, before he changed his name, celebrated a said festival in the third year of his reign. This was an unheard of irrigation of tradition. He was supposed to wait at least another 27 years before having such a festival. And then, in the fifth year of his reign, Akhenaten finally did something about Ammon, his corrupt priesthood, and all those other gods. He did something for which the priests of Egypt would never forgive him. He outlawed the worship of all gods but one. From that point on, you could only publicly worship one god in Egypt, and the name of that god was Aten, A-T-E-N. Aten was one of the gods of the sun. And to further underline this changed focus of Egyptian worship, the pharaoh changed his name to Akhenaten. The meaning of the name is not completely clear to modern-day Egyptologists, but it is definitely something which praises Aten. Now, we have heard before of rulers with their own preferred god, their own cult to which they belonged. In the third episode that I did on Egypt, about the Middle Kingdom, I mentioned a series of pharaohs who gave their preference to Sobek, the crocodile god. What distinguishes Akhenaten's religious preference from that of pharaohs before this time and perhaps distinguishes him from all other people before him, is that he attached an unusual and unprecedented superiority to Aten, a superiority over all the other gods. In hindsight, with the evidence that we have, it seems that Agnaten had come to believe that Aten, the sun god to whom he devoted his religious practice, was the one and only god. Looking this far back into the past, it is difficult to ascertain just what exactly people were thinking and what they meant by what they did, even when their thoughts and actions had been recorded. But in Akhenaten's case, we struggle to know his exact attentions because not only did he live long ago and in a different culture, but his actions and words were apparently so upsetting to his Egyptian posterity that they attempted to erase evidence of his reign and of his existence to deface public proclamations that he had set in stone. So our knowledge of this particular juncture in Egyptian history is kind of cloudy. Now today it is common to think of polytheism and monotheism in a very distinct manner. This is probably due to the black and white presentation of the subject matter in the Bible, in which the gods of the other cultures outside Judaism are, over the course of the entire text, revealed to be entirely false idols, and only the God of Israel to be the real, true God, to be, in fact, the creator of the universe, the arbiter of morals in the human milieu. And so we are set up in the Christian perspective with a simple choice. Either there are many gods or there is just one. Today, in a changing world, that debate has actually been recast. Either there is a god or there is none. But religious matters were not really that simple in the ancient world. I have addressed this idea previously in the episode about Babylonia. In that podcast, I briefly described how the god Marduk transformed, in a sense, over time, to become the principal god of the Mesopotamians, shoving aside prior claimants to the throne, such as the sky father Anu or the storm god Enlil, it was not that the other gods did not exist in the hearts and minds of the average Babylonian, only that Marduk had acquired a supremacy over the others, as we see with Zeus in the Greek pantheon. Now, there is an alternate form of theism, distinct from polytheism, monotheism, and atheism, about which we generally hear very little or nothing today, and that form of theism is known as henotheism. That's spelled H-E-N-O-T-H-E-I-S-M, henotheism. This is a theistic viewpoint in which the believer accepts the existence of multiple gods, but attaches him or herself, through ritual and or creed, to one particular deity. That god or goddess is the only one that will receive the attention of the believer. That's the only one that will receive the sacrifices, the prayers, and so on. 
You may distinguish this from more familiar perceptions of polytheism in which a person may sacrifice to one god for a safe journey, pray to another for a healthy child, and petition a third for a good harvest without feeling the slightest bit of confusion. A henotheist would ask the same god for all of those favors. Henotheism, then, this preference for one particular god, is, in fact, probably the real distinguishing mark of the Hebrew religion as practiced late in the ancient world, as we see in the time of Jesus. It is not necessarily a categorical denial of the existence of the other gods, but rather the claim that one's particular god is superior, that the god or goddess that you worship is somehow better and the others are servants or mischievous or maybe even diabolical spirits. So, was Akhenaten a henotheist or a much stricter monotheist, believing not only that his god was superior, but that his god alone actually existed? For a few years after he ascended to the throne of Egypt, he allowed the worship of other gods to continue, though he made clear his own attachment to his sun god, Aten. In the fifth year of his reign, as mentioned earlier, this pharaoh changed his name from Amenhotep to Akhenaten and declared that Aten was the one true god for Egypt. Then he broke up the priesthoods of the other gods and seized their income. Over time, Akhenaten's attachment to his sun god only grew. By the ninth year of his reign, he had essentially outlawed the worship of all other gods. Aten was the only god who could receive public worship. Temples of other gods, particularly the previous favorite of the pharaohs, Amun, were closed and defaced. Written or engraved references to the plurality of gods were erased or chiseled out of existence. Even images were outlawed in religious use, except for the depiction of Aten as a sun with rays shooting forth. This should sound familiar to any student of history, especially religious history. The defamation of images sounds a lot like the message of the prophets of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam thousands of years before their time. Indeed, as I will describe later and in the next episode, many researchers believe that the monotheistic trend in Judaism may have gotten its start during the Egyptian captivity period of Israelite history, as described in the book of Exodus. While the matter may still be debated, it certainly seems like Agnaton had come all the way from polytheism to ruthless monotheism, even denying the existence of other gods. The extent or lack of his tolerance is not completely known, but there is every reason to believe, especially as he came to the later years of his reign, that he was indeed an exclusionary monotheist, someone who professed his god, and his god alone existed and ruled the universe. As for this god, Aten, he was not an alien introduction into the Egyptian pantheon. He was not a new god imported from somewhere else. No, Aten appears to have developed out of the worship of Ra, who was also a god associated with the sun. During the life of Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III, the worship of Aten had become more popular. Akhenaten's reign was truly a religious revolution, the first of many in history. This was not merely the gradual realignment of religious faith, a phenomenon which will also be repeated throughout history and which has already, by the time of the Bronze Age, been seen to happen as earlier described with Marduk among the Babylonians. No, this was a bold declaration. It was a coup without precedent. It is interesting to note in a digression that our perspective of Akhenaten has probably changed through the years since his rediscovery in the late 19th century. If you read historians from the early 20th century, you will often find praise for Akhenaten as a great religious reformer, paving the way for the more acceptable monotheism that would later sweep the world. However, 
reading now in the 21st century about his ruthless oppression of all religion and spirituality except for that which he approved, I wouldn't be surprised if many people consider him to be nothing more than a religious tyrant, opposed to freedom of religion, freedom of speech and thought. Now, Akhenaten was not a one-trick pony, though. His acts and deeds outside of the religious reforms do amount to a great deal. For example, here one of his scribes, perhaps, also made a contribution to literature with this devotion to Aten. He wrote the now well-remembered Great Hymn to the Aten. Here is a portion of it that may help explain why the hymn remains famous. How manifold it is what thou hast made, hidden from the face of man, O sole God, like whom there is no other. Thou didst create the earth according to thy heart, why that while thou wast alone. If you are a Bible reader, this language and tone may sound familiar. The similarities between the entirety of this hymn and the 104th Psalm, and all of Jewish monotheism for that matter, are more than striking. If the biblical psalmist did not simply and straightforwardly adapt the hymn to the praise of the God of Israel, then he or she certainly borrowed heavily from it or from the same body of Egyptian literature and tradition. Its points of commonality could not be coincidences. Also striking is the attribution to Aten of having made the whole world and all the nations in it. This is a very universalist approach that was not very common and may have been unique. Like God in Genesis, Aten is depicted as being alone in the act of creation and as the creator and caretaker of all the nations of men. He is not just the God of the Egyptians. Now, Akhenaten also built a new capital. He named it Akhetaten, so very close to his, his own name with just a, a T in place of the N in the middle, Akhetaten. And he moved the royal family there. As had some pharaohs in previous ages, Akhenaten openly proclaimed himself to be the one and only divine intermediary. Only in his case, he had essentially eliminated the other gods, and he now stood as the earthly representative of the sun god, Aten. So when he moved the royal family, he also moved the absolute center of religious belief. This is sort of comparable to the popes of the Middle Ages moving out of the Vatican in Rome to the city of Avignon in France. And for the Egyptians, the move to Akhetaten was later remembered with the same amount of acrimony that medieval, medieval Christians felt with regard to the Pope's transfer to France. The Egyptians would be quick to abandon the city not long after Akhenaten passed, and it would return to the sands of the deserts more quickly than the other ruins of Egypt. No, Akhenaten's revolution did not last. Brutally forceful during his reign, this pharaoh was able to achieve essentially all of his religious goals. He forbade open worship of the other gods, he disbanded the various priesthoods, and he placed himself at the forefront of all remaining permissible public worship. His handful of successors maintained the throne at the new capital of Akhetaten, and they continued to push the new monotheism of the sun god Aten, but, beginning with Tutankhamun, they began to allow a resumption of worship for the other gods. These successors sustained the power of the 18th dynasty until just after 1300 BC when Haremheb, the last successor of Akhenaten, died childless. He passed down power to his vizier, who would become the first pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, Ramses I. Ramses returned to the old capital in Thebes. He fully restored the old religions and approved a return to the ancient polytheism of his ancestors. And Egypt would re-embrace the multiplicity of gods, until the establishment of Christianity more than 1,500 years later.
Regarding the family life of Ignatin, this pharaoh, like all pharaohs before him, had many wives. His principal wife, or great wife, was a woman named Nefertiti. Now she is famous for all the busts and other resemblances of hers that have come down to us thanks to archaeology. I will include some pictures of her depictions on the website at western-traditions.org, but they are easily discoverable in an image search. Akhenaten was apparently a very devoted father who commissioned many portrayals of himself with his family. This strikes a contrast with the way that many pharaohs, such as the later Ramses II, whom I will discuss in a short while, it contrasts with many pharaohs in the way they preferred to show themselves as warlords or as solemn, godlike figures. Images of Akhenaten show a man among his children. He had at least six daughters. There was speculation for many years that Akhenaten was solely devoted to Nefertiti and that he eschewed the polygamy of his ancestors, but this view has come into doubt with more discoveries. Nevertheless, there is little doubt that Akhenaten approached life and family differently than all the pharaohs that had come before him. He may have been too devoted a father. Several vassal states were lost during his reign, and much control was lost in Canaan, and Akhenaten seems to have been reluctant to engage in warfare. There is evidence of just one military campaign during his reign. Perhaps, perhaps Akhenaten's eye was drawn away from international politics by the subjects of religion and family. Now, with regard to the subjects of Egyptian marriage and family, I need to return us to a topic that I introduced in the very first episode on Egypt, and that topic is the possibility of incestuous marriage in Egypt. This topic is still hotly debated, and I have previously come down on the side that this is most likely a misunderstanding often created by the distance of time and culture between ourselves and the ancient Egyptians, and that incestuous marriage Strictly incestuous marriage between full-blood brothers and sisters was not practiced regularly by the Egyptians. However, the key term there is regularly, and there seems to be a lot of evidence that, at this juncture in Egyptian history anyway, during the New Kingdom, there were such marriages among the royal family. Marriages of pharaohs to half-sisters were definitely a reality. In fact, there was some debate as to whether or not Nefertiti was Akhenaten's full sister, this is now considered unlikely, but that she was closely related, perhaps a half-sister, seems very possible. We know that Amos, the first pharaoh of the, of the 18th dynasty, we know that he and his family, the first pharaohs, they married their sisters and apparently produced offspring through them. Indeed, some researchers now look at the existing figures and portraits and so on of the royal families of the pharaohs from the New Kingdom and seek signs of physical deformities caused by ongoing incestuous procreation. Some argue that the representations of Akhenaten, for example, show signs of one or another genetic disorder associated with children of incest. One of his successors and probable son, Tutankhamun, did marry his half-sister, in apparent continuation of a trend in marital relations among the ruling classes of Egypt, at the very least. Anyway, getting back to Akhenaten, he achieved his religious goals and was greatly successful in promoting his new faith in the sun god Aten. However, like many revolutions, its ongoing success was largely due to the personal charisma and political strength of one individual. Strict monotheism did not long outlast Akhenaten in Egypt. Briefly after his death, it appears that Nefertiti may have continued to rule as pharaoh, though this is another topic which has its believers and doubters. She is considered to have likely been the biggest promoter of the new religion. What we know for sure is that Akhenaten was ultimately succeeded by Tutankhamun, the famous King Tut of modern archaeology, who relaxed some of the restrictions on polytheistic worship.
Interestingly, Egyptian records show that Tut was originally called Tutankhaten. That is, his name included a reference to the sun god Aten. It was later changed to Tutankhamun, possibly to reflect the royal family's renewed devotion to the traditional deity of the ruling class, Amun. This may have also been a political move to placate powerful polytheistic enemies in the ruling classes who might have wanted to usurp the throne of the child king, as Tut took power when he was still a young boy. Akhenaten's determined imposition of monotheism on the entire country of Egypt, short-lived as it was, did have some long-lasting consequences on Egyptian spirituality, though. For most of his lengthy reign, public, organized, large-scale worship of the gods was forbidden, unless you were worshiping Aten. And, as far as we can tell, most religious devotion prior to this period was expressed this way in public gatherings, performing rituals or watching as priests perform rituals and sacrifices. With Akhenaten's oppression of the old rites, it appears that Egyptian spirituality adapted and people became accustomed to approaching their gods in more private small groups or even in individual settings. Think of images of Hindus or Catholic Christians lighting candles, whispering prayers, and performing other such devotions to their gods in the privacy of their homes or in the alcoves of temples and churches. Think of the Christians in Rome worshipping in secret in the catacombs. So strangely, in his attempts to impose monotheism on his people, Akhenaten actually increased devotion to the old gods, but in a new way. Now, after Akhenaten's death, there was a series of pharaohs or regents in an unsteady succession. Nefertiti, as I said, may or may not have ruled as pharaoh briefly after her husband's death. The record is not clear, possibly due to later attempts to erase or alter memory of this period, in which men and women, later deemed to be religious traitors, held the throne. Tutankhamun, who was most likely Akhenaten's son, would, become, would begin restoration of the old religions, though this was likely carried out by advisors, since the young king would die while still a teenager. With the restoration of the old religions, public worship of the old gods became permissible again, and the old priesthoods were restored as well. However, it seems that private forms of worship continued to exist alongside the grander, more ritualistic ceremonies carried out in public view. Now, Tutankhamun died young and without heirs. For a long time, due to the appearance of his mummy, discovered in 1922, historians theorized that Tut had been assassinated, possibly as part of an ongoing grudge against his family, held by the now revived but still angry priesthoods, which his predecessors had outlawed. However, further investigations suggest that Tut died from a number of health complications, he may have been in poor health to begin with, and that the, the evidence of assassination, which was significant damage to his skull, was likely due to mishandling when his mummy was recovered. So power passed on to men who may have been regents or advisors to Tut, probably related either by blood or marriage to the royal family of Akhenaten. The last of these successors, Haremheb, also died childless and appointed his vizier to succeed him. This vizier took the name of Ramses, and began the 19th dynasty of Egyptian kings. The name of Ramses, though it has its origins in ancient Egypt, is one probably familiar to most Westerners. There are depictions of Ramses, the pharaoh of Egypt, in films and in books, not only in biblical literature, but in popular fiction as well. 
most people recognize the name of one of the more powerful pharaohs of Egypt. I will pronounce the name in this episode as Ramses, though contemporary scholars now tend to spell it as Ramesses, R-A-M-E-S-S-E-S. The name, however you say it, refers to praise to the sun god, Ra, who had resumed some popularity in the post-Akhenaten period. The 19th and 20th dynasties of the kings of Egypt altogether constitute a period in Egyptian history known as the Ramesside period. This term refers to the popularity of the name of Ramses for the pharaohs during the two centuries that passed under these dynasties. The last pharaoh of the 20th dynasty was Ramses XI. But we will come to the sad story of the declining 20th dynasty in just a moment. Right now, before we allow history to eclipse the Egypt of the pharaohs, let us examine the life and reign of Ramses II, third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. He is sometimes depicted as the pharaoh of the Exodus. This is probably poetic license, but it is appropriate in some ways because the life of this Ramses is truly epic. He was already co-regent with his father at age 14. About 10 years later, he became the sole pharaoh of the land beside the Nile, and he probably ruled for another 66 years after that. In all that time, he brought glory to Egypt like she had not known for some time, and would never know again. As with all the history of Egypt, I must do a disservice to Ramses II in that I could not even dream of doing an exhaustive study of his reign, his accomplishments on the field of battle, in the diplomatic realm, and as a commissioner and builder of great art and architecture are, in many ways, unparalleled. However, as we are on the road to the West, I will only provide a brief summary of his deeds before concluding this history of Egypt. Ramses II is probably best remembered for his military achievements. He waged war against Egypt's enemies right from the beginning of his reign. We know for sure that he personally led his armies into the field, and according to Egyptian records, he actually engaged in combat from his chariot. Over the course of his first 20-some years on the throne, he directed and personally led several campaigns into Canaan and Syria to the north. Control of Canaan, the biblical land of milk and honey, was crucial to Egyptian wealth and power because trade routes to Mesopotamia passed through this land. Seizing and controlling that land, as Egypt had done several times throughout history, was a greater challenge this time around because now there was a powerful foe in the north who also wanted to control this strip of land. I speak now of the Hittites. In a previous episode, I mentioned that the Hittites had fought the Egyptians, but they never truly defeated them. Eventually, after many engagements over many years during Ramses' reign, the two powers agreed to a treaty at the city of Kadesh, a city whose ruins now lie in Lebanon. Ramses had won a great battle at that same site in one of his earlier campaigns against the Hittites. Once his northern border and trade routes were here secured, Ramses rested from his wars here and never had to return to battle for control of the area during the remainder of his reign. Ramses also turned his attention to Egypt's other borders when he could. He fought many battles in the south against Nubia. While possession of Canaan secured trade routes to Anatolia and Mesopotamia, a strong presence in Nubia ensured access to gold and other resources in Africa. And though all this activity might seem exhausting, Ramses also fought in the west against the Libyans, and he built a large navy to clear pirates from the Mediterranean coast. But Ramses was a builder as well as a destroyer. Akhenaten had moved the royal capital from Thebes to a freshly built city named after his sun god, Aten. After his dynasty had passed, the pharaohs returned to Thebes and then to Memphis, the truly ancient capital to the north in Lower Egypt. Ramses II, 
determined to be his own pharaoh and to have no parallel, built his own new capital, Pyramises, in Lower Egypt. It was closer to Canaan than any of the old capitals, as if to demonstrate Ramses' desire to face his enemies directly. His stalwart capital erected in the north, Ramses also made sure to build in the south in the face of his Nubian enemies. Here he constructed many temples, including an immense complex known as Abu Simbel. Describing the magnificence of these, magnificence of these structures in words does not do them justice. They are not simply immense, as were the pyramids before them, but even in ruins, they are also beautiful. More than anything, though, the temple complexes, in addition to paying tribute to traditional Egyptian gods, such as Ra, Amun, and Ptah, the god of the underworld, the structures also demonstrate the grandeur of Ramses himself, in his own mind anyway. In fact, Ramses' depictions in the temple at Abu Simbel are more godlike than those of the actual gods of Egypt. There is but one entrance to this temple, and there are four immense statues, each of them 20 meters tall. Each of them represents Ramses, because one huge statue of yourself is not enough when you're Ramses, king of Egypt. Besides these gargantuan statues of the pharaoh are numerous other figures carved in stone, but none of them are tall enough to even reach his knee. They include his wives, his children, and other members of his household. And now that we've come to the subject of wives, we can come back awkwardly one more time to the topic of incest. Whatever my views on the likelihood of the practice of incestuous marriage in Egypt at any given time, there is no doubt that Ramses indulged in such practices. He is known to have married four of his own daughters. However, as Ramses II had hundreds of wives and concubines, it is also possible that this was a move merely meant to ensure that these women did not marry below their station, as it would be hard to find a man suitable for marriage to the offspring of such a great man. And it this in no way guarantees that he actually consummated marriages with these women. Still, given the fact that Egyptian men, pharaohs anyway, and other men of this region were known to marry relatives as close as their half-sister and consummate those marriages and produce offspring through them, as did Abraham in the Bible, his wife Sarah was his half-sister, then it seems possible that someone as full of himself as Ramses II, II might not have scrupled at crossing that last line and consummating marriage with his daughters. And speaking of children, Ramses lived so long that he outlived multiple heirs. One of his sons became crown prince in Ramses' 25th year of rule in Egypt. That same son died in Ramses' 50th year of rule. Having waited 25 years to inherit the double crown of Lower and Upper Egypt, he preceded his father to the grave, and Ramses kept on keeping on for another 15 years at least. Prior to his inevitable death, Ramses made sure that the event would be remembered as grandiosely as his life had been lived. His tomb is located in the Valley of Kings in Upper Egypt, where nearly all the pharaohs of the New Kingdom were buried, along with many family members and others of high rank. Ramses' tomb alone is impressive. It is the second largest of all the tombs, but it is the nearby tomb of his numerous sons and daughters, many of whom died during his lifetime, which is the largest tomb of all in the Valley of Kings. There are hundreds of rooms and corridors carved into this ancient subterranean stone mausoleum. Ramses II ensured, prior to his death, that he and his bloodline would be remembered for all eternity. Remembered, perhaps, but not necessarily respected. All of these tombs were subject to grave robbery, even in the ancient world. The pyramids were treated the same way. 
Egyptians of a later period were first responsible for denigrating these memories of their ancestors, and the tradition of looting these tombs continued on through the Greek, Roman, and medieval periods on into the present day. Much of what must have been a colorful and impressive effort to decorate the transition into the next world has now been lost forever. Much more would be lost shortly after the death of Ramses, of Ramses II. The 19th dynasty would barely outlast him, and the 20th dynasty that followed, though it honored Ramses in having nine of its pharaohs take his name, it was a pale ghost of what the 19th dynasty had been under their namesake. After the last Ramses of that dynasty died, Egypt would again be split into northern and southern realms. Priests ascended to the throne and completed the conversion of the nation into an inward-looking theocracy. Never again would Egypt regain the kind of majesty and power that it had held in the ancient world. This was fitting because the ancient world itself was dying in a certain sense. For 2,000 years or more, the Bronze Age had endured in the Near East. Bronze metallurgy was technology that supported the ancient Near East in many ways, in ways that might not have been fully understood by the people of that time period until the supply of bronze was cut off. Bronze tools were vastly important in the ancient world. They made agriculture easier and more productive. A single man and his ox could much more effective, effectively plow land with a bronze plowshare than they could with a stone plow. And bronze helped create weapons of war for the civilized realms with, with which they could effectively defend themselves against barbarian outlying kingdoms that did not possess this technology or these supplies. However, bronze is an alloy. An alloy is a mixture of two different metals. Most bronze alloys typically require tin and copper ores, and sometimes other metals in their composition. But copper and tin, for whatever geological reason, are rarely ever found in large deposits near one another. Therefore, the supply of bronze in the ancient Near East, especially in the area of the Levant, relied heavily on the maintenance of trade routes, which brought tin from as far away as the British Isles, and copper from places like Armenia in the mountains of the Caucasus and Oman on the Arabian Peninsula. You might remember, from this episode or another, how much emphasis rulers of various realms placed on controlling and strengthening trade. This is always a concern for wise rulers, but it was particularly important in order to maintain the infrastructure of the Bronze Age world. A breakdown in trade, whether due to war or piracy, meant a breakdown in the supply of bronze. Think of what the slightest threat to the supply of oil does to the world today. It is the very lifeblood of commerce. What would happen if the oil just stopped? If there were even a delay of 30 days, there really is no energy source that would replace oil in the short term. There would be an incredible, unthinkable transformation in society, and people would likely handle the changes very poorly. This is similar to how interference with the supply of bronze impacted the ancient world in the 12th century BC. This was just a decade after the 19th dynasty came to an end. The memory of Ramses II was becoming just that, a memory, when disaster struck the ancient world. Now you can find in various locations on the internet and in various books much more about the particular events that caused this disaster. One recorded lecture on YouTube refers to 
1177 BC, the year that civilization collapsed. That might be clickbait in that the event did not happen that quickly over the course of just one year, but that year might have been the tipping point. Certainly the Egyptians may have thought so. That year they successfully fought off an unexpected overseas invasion of a strange new people. Historians refer to them as the Sea Peoples. Just who they were and what their relationship to other peoples in the Eastern Mediterranean were is not clear. Sometime after 1200 BC, they began to plague and harass the various kingdoms of the Aegean Sea and the Levant. Mycenae, the proto-Greek culture that had probably absorbed Minoan civilization, was destroyed in this onslaught, as was the Hittite Empire in Anatolia. Yes, Egyptian forces repelled the attack on their coast, but the pharaoh's military strength never really recovered after that blow. The Kingdom of Egypt began a slow, century-long slide into another intermediate period of decline and chaos. Even the Assyrians in Mesopotamia were struck and weakened by these invaders. Who were they, these Sea Peoples? There is no clear identification of them anywhere in history, no clue as to where they came from or how they got there, or why they were so aggressive. Previously, I have cautioned us when characterizing the arrival of new people in a specific time and region as an invasion, when immigration was often a more likely explanation. But there is no doubt here, the Sea Peoples attacked everywhere during this century and made a shambles of more than one kingdom. There are many hints as to their identity. When we look at the Israelites in the next episode, they will have a great deal of trouble with a people called the Philistines on their western coast. And most scholars agree that the Philistines probably represent one branch of the Sea Peoples, but that still does not solve the mystery of where they came from. While they appear to have destroyed the Mycenaean civilization, some posit that the Sea Peoples actually were Mycenaeans, that they were uprooted survivors, perhaps, who went on to cause havoc all their own as they sought a new place to live. And indeed, there are similarities in Philistine pottery and Mycenaean pottery that make this connection seem possible, if not likely. Other scholars suggest origins for the Sea Peoples in Anatolia, and some suggest that they were a variety of peoples on the move at the same time. Now, interestingly, all this happens right around the time that the events of the Iliad and the Odyssey occurred. So some have suggested that the Greek heroes of these tales are really nothing more than these same marauders, some branch of the Sea Peoples, reinterpreted and glorified in the eyes of their literate descendants in Greece centuries later. The attack on Troy, then, is an attack by the Sea Peoples on the kingdom of, Anato- of the kingdoms of Anatolia, and the assault on Anatolia is an established event. To give some kind of confirmation to that view, it has been determined, using astronomical details provided by the Greek poet Homer in the Odyssey, that Odysseus would have arrived back home on Ithaca in 1178 BC, just a year before the Sea Peoples made a particularly devastating assault on Egypt. Whoever the Sea Peoples were, the immediate results of their depredations were the fall of long-standing kingdoms in the West and the permanent crippling of Egypt, which would never again achieve the zenith it had reached under Ramses II only a century before. Long-term, the results impacted the whole region with a long-term breakdown in trade. Perhaps, too, though there was more to it than a simple invasion of brutal barbaric folk. In addition to the attacks of the Sea Peoples, climate change caused by volcanic activity during this time period, droughts, drought, dr- dr- droughts, <laughs> droughts and famines may have created a perfect storm situation which brought the Bronze Age to an end in the Near East. 
Furthermore, some theorists have suggested that this cataclysmic ending to the Bronze Age is just another instance of something they call general systems collapse, in which the systems and means for sustaining a civilization become too complex and people revert to simpler ways of living. They may do so because once unraveled, the former civilization is just too complex to put back together, or they may simply do this in an opportunistic manner, using disasters such as those outlined above as excuses to essentially bulldoze the good and bad features of society and just go back to living without the annoying oversight of centralization and bureaucracy. The Egyptians had probably already been through this experience more than once. Now, I keep referring to the end of the Bronze Age. This does not mean that the manufacture of bronze halted at this point. When the reliable supply of tin and copper was interrupted, though, people naturally looked to other metals to replace bronze. At the beginning of the Bronze Age, metallurgy was still in its infancy, and the heating capability of furnaces for smelting ores was very limited. Therefore, metal ores such as iron, with a very high melting point, could not be utilized to make tools or weapons. Later, metallurgy advanced, as did the power of furnaces, and ironwork was done here and there. But bronze was firmly entrenched as the alloy of choice, and it was easy to make as long as the supply chain was not interrupted. So now, with the supplies of copper and tin uncertain, now was the perfect time for iron smelters already active in places like Anatolia and in the, Balkan, and in the Balkans. Over the course of the next few centuries, iron would replace bronze in weaponry and toolmaking, and the Iron Age would begin. But not fast enough to restrain the deluge. A dark age ensued in the Mediterranean. Egypt was on its way down and would never regain its former grandeur in political terms. The Minoans in Crete, the Hittites in Anatolia, and the Mycenaeans in Greece all saw the ends of their respective realms and a dissolution into general anarchy until smaller kingdoms put themselves together in the wake of the collapse. A new order would take centuries to establish, and in the lull of this period, the land of Canaan would assert itself and form the kingdom of Israel, which would stand until the surrounding kingdoms in Mesopotamia and Egypt regained their footing and began to vie once again for control of that important trade route. Egypt, when the 20th dynasty fell, slid into another period of divided rule, one pharaoh in the north and another in the south. This was not quite the end of Egypt. There were more than a dozen dynasties still to come, and the pharaohs of one sort or another would rule here for a thousand years after the end of the new kingdom. Often these pharaohs were either foreigners themselves, Nubians or Greeks, or they were appointed by foreigners such as the Persians. The Third Intermediate Period would end in the 6th century BC with the Persian Conquest, which we will describe in a later episode. It was followed by an era known as the Late Period in Egyptian history, which lasted another 500 cent five centuries until the Romans conquered Egypt and brought an end to the 3,000-year-old tradition of pharaohs ruling over the land beside the Nile. Now Egypt, having been Nubian, Persian, Greek, and Roman, would then become a thoroughly Christian land until the Arab Muslim conquest in the 7th century AD. The story of Egypt goes on from there and has many interesting twists and turns, but I will not devote another episode to the Egyptians. Their significance for our Western traditions has waned. The greatest impact of theirs on our history yet to be described will be related in the next episode, 
in which the Israelites depart that land and establish themselves in Canaan. So this is goodbye to Egypt. In the next episode, we will leave the Nile, cross the Red Sea, and enter into the land of Canaan one more time. Until then, I remind you once again to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Check out the source list, the maps, and the pictures, and the other things. And if you wish, support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. There are just a few more episodes left in this first series on our Western traditions. Before beginning the second, beginning the second series on ancient Greece, I will update the website, and I plan on selling Western traditions merchandise and advertising more books. Be on the lookout for that. Then, sometime this summer, I expect to release the first episode in the second series, which will be titled The Greek Sun. Until we meet again, standing beside Moses on the shore of the Red Sea, Thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.